Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. I'll ask if anyone had any thoughts left over from last time, but first I think I'll just review what we did last time. Okay? Hashem Hashem our God, you loved us with a great love. You or you have loved us, could be either, the Hebrew past tense, with an abundant love. You mercied us with a great and abundant mercy. By the way, I was thinking about this. Um, it is it just what does it mean when we say God loves us? So what's standing behind this is first of all uh, an assumption that God has a relationship with us. God relates as opposed to impersonal scientific God of only electromagnetism and the weak force and the strong force, which is impersonal and has nothing to do with human beings, right? So God relates. And number two, the fundamental or a fundamental aspect of this relationship is something that we call ahava or love. And different different Jewish theologians look at that differently. I just want to state that clearly. So the Torah clearly describes God as having human-like feelings, anger, love, disgust, sadness, etc. The Midrash, Rabbinic Midrash, certainly amplifies that tremendously. Um, And, or but, I just want to point out, you know, like Maimonides finds that idea anathema, right? He would be repelled by the idea that God feels love. Right, So medieval philosophy is epitomized by Rambam would say, God does not have feelings. Feelings are human things. People feel angry and feel love and feel sadness and feel disgust. Sometimes we see things in the universe. We, we see what God did and we say, oh, if a human being did that, it would be because they had love. Or Tisha B'Av is coming. Anger. That's why they smashed their temple, sent, sent the Babylonians or the Romans and allowed them to smash the temple because they felt if a human being did that, we would call that angry, which is a human feeling. So we use human metaphors to understand God, but it's only a metaphor. So Rambam would say everything we say about God in terms of God's feelings towards us is all metaphoric. It's not literal. Okay, it means God acts towards us in a way that if a human being did that, if a human being give up, we talked last week about just like a parent who gives a child guidance, that's what the Torah is. The parent doesn't leave the child out like good luck, figure life out for yourself. The parent gives rules and instructions and guidance. That's what we're talking about in Avarabha when we talk about the Torah. So why does a parent do that? A parent does that because they love their child. So God does that for us. We call it love, right? So again, I think in rabbinic thinking, which is probably embodied by the authors of the Sidur, what they mean is there is a divine being God who actually loves us, okay? Rambam would say 
we're just you this is just a metaphor okay that if humans gave someone the torah it would embody and be proof of love that's why we use that word for god but that's not literally true right only fools believe that right just as god does not have a mighty outstretched right arm it's a we're using a human physical metaphor to explain what god's actions are when we say God loves or God is angry, that's why God destroyed the temple. Um, that's ju- also just, that's as much of a metaphor as God's mighty right arm. God is angry just as much as God has a right arm, which is to say zero. All of those are just anthropomorphic figures of speech to help us understand God's action because God is fundamentally, you know, in a category of one that we fundamentally cannot understand anything about. The one thing we the one thing we understand about God is that we are incapable of understanding anything about God. That's what Maimonides says. So I just want to throw that out there for you to, you know, keep it in your pipe and smoke it, you know, as we all, you know, we all work out our theology of, of what we mean when we talk about God. So I just want to throw that out there. So, God, you loved us a great love. You mercied us a great mercy. Avinu Malkenu, parent and sovereign. Again, God as near and far. Ba'avur avotenu shebatchu v'chavat lamdemo chayim. For the sake of our ancestors who trusted you and you taught them laws of life, came to Chonenu Tlamdenu. Be also, show us the same grace and teach us. So you had this relationship with our ancestors. You taught them laws. And we're now asking you to please show the, show the same graciousness and kindness to us by doing what, again, what's the fundamental embodiment? What, what act is the fundamental embodiment of love? It's Vatilamdenu. Teach us, instruct us, okay? So God, you're in relationship with us, us as the Jewish people. We, we know what the instruction is going to be. Spoiler alert, it's the Torah, right? Um, so you acted in a loving way towards us. Please act, continue to act in this loving way towards us by doing what? Teaching. So one, one thing, we're going to expand it later, in a moment, but for now it's just teach us, right? Show me love, show us love also by teaching us, instructing us. That's how God demonstrates love in this prayer. Avinu ha'avarachaman, our parent, now I'll, now I'll gender it, our father, wumi father, father of, father with wuminess, hamrachem, the wumi one, rachem aleinu, Womify us, right? Whatever that means. Vitain Billy Bainu. We didn't stop. This didn't stop us last week. We should pause briefly. Vitain Billy Bainu. We're asking God to grant us the ability to learn, teach, and keep the Torah, which is an interesting concept. Because we would think, at least superficially, that that would be just an aspect of free will, right? Like God gives us the Torah, and then I can choose to learn and study and appreciate Torah and live by it. 
or not, right? Classically, we think God delivers us the Torah. That's God's job. And then it's our job to receive it and learn it and study it. So how could I be asking God to grant me, because v'tein bilibenu literally means place it in my mind. In better English, we would say something like, uh, I don't know what we'd say, grant us the willingness, grant us the ability, right? Anything we said in English is is not an exact translation, but we're actually asking God to help us learn Right. So um, and lots of commentators say, well, how can you ask that? Isn't that free will? Hakol uh, the rabbinic dictum. Everything is up to heaven except for fear of heaven, meaning everything in the world is up to God except our our relationship from us to God. That's our responsibility. So somehow here we're asking God to help us with the part which is our responsibility. I just want to let it linger there. Meyer, don't respond yet, okay? So we're asking, even, we're not saying, God, you gave us the Torah, it's loving, that was a loving act, and we will lovingly do the Torah. It's God grant us in our mind so that we can lovingly do the Torah. V'tein Billy Beno. So I just want to let that question hang for a little bit. What are we asking God to do? So, whatever that means, granted in our mind, so that we could to understand, discern, obey, or hear, learn, and teach, keep, and do, and fulfill. Okay, so we want to be able to understand, teach, and do. What's the purpose of Torah learning according to this? Clearly, is to do, right? It throws us back to that rabbinic uh, discussion in the Talmud, which is more important, Talmud or Ma'aseh, Torah study or doing mitzvot. And they debate it, and the conclusion is learning, because learning leads you to do action. If you just did action, but you didn't learning, you didn't do learning, then you'd be limited to just the actions that you did. If you learn, it enables you to continue to do action, right? So the purpose of learning is not learning for its own sake or being wise or Torah scholars for its own sake, but so that we can lishmor la'asot ulkayem et kol divrei talmud Torah techa b'hava, all the words of your Torah Lovingly, And we said last week, the lovingly here is ambiguous, right? So is it v'tein bilibenu b'ava, God? You know, in English, we would have a rule, which is the adverb has to go closest to the verb that it modifies. So it could mean God lovingly grant us the ability to study and keep your Torah, which means lovingly modifies what God does. Or it could mean God grant us the ability to learn and study and keep your Torah lovingly, which means modifies that we will be the ones lovingly. So does lovingly modify our series of verbs or does lovingly modify God's verb? In Hebrew, it's ambiguous. You might, you might think it's intentionally ambiguous. 
right? God loves us. We love God back. It's like a love fest between two people and you kind of can't tell, you know, we all know this, a parent and child or two lovers. It's like hard to tell which way the love is flowing. Uh, it's just sort of, you know, um, the atmosphere is imbued with love. So it's ambiguous, maybe intentionally ambiguous. I just want to make sure everyone gets the ambiguity, right? That Be'ahava could either apply to what we're doing lovingly or Be'ahava could mean what God is doing lovingly, which is grant us the ability to learn Torah, learn and keep. And illuminate our eyes by means of your Torah. Um, And Larry pointed out the great uh, Chiddush last time, right, that the first blessing is about light. The first talks about light and the second blessing now has light. And light in the first blessing is concrete, and it's an embodiment of rachamim. And there's also light in the second blessing, but it's metaphoric. It's the illumination of the mind. Right here we say illuminate our eyes um, in Torah, but that kind of means our mind, right? It's a metaphoric illumination. Um, And that metaphoric illumination is also an act of love, right? So we talked about the light of creation, the light of the morning is an act of evidence of God's rachamim in the first blessing. And illuminate us in Torah is evidence of God's ahava and rachamim in the second blessing. Okay, God blesses us concretely and God blesses us with Torah in the second blessing. So illuminate our eyes with your Torah. Again, we're asking God to do something that you would think is only within our power, cause our minds to cleave to your mitzvot, right? Dabek is a command form to God. It means we're asking God for something. I'm saying, God, cause me to cleave to your mitzvot. I just want to let the question hang for a moment. How could God cause me to cling to mitzvot? Isn't that my free choice if I do mitzvot or not? How could we ask God for that? and unify our mind, which I think means make us single-minded. By the way, it's in the plural. All of this is in the plural. We're talking about us, the people Israel. We, re- we receive Torah as a people. So does mean for each one of us, for, for me as an individual, cause me or help me to be single-minded in pursuit of Torah? Or does it mean cause us as a group of Jews who've received Torah to act in a unified kind of way imbued with Torah? That is also ambiguous, right? So when I say I, I want to get you guys to do something, do I mean I want to get each one of you to do something? Or does it mean I want to get you as a group to do something together? It could mean either one. So again, viached levavenu could mean either for each one of you, each one of us, please unify our heart to be single-mindedly in pursuit of Torah, or it could mean for us, the Jewish people as a group, please unify our heart to seek out and do your Torah. It could mean either, or of course, both. Again, could be intentionally ambiguous. So unify our hearts to do what? to love and reverence your name. Again, we have the tension of God is near, intimate, 
but also far distant and lofty, right? I'm in reverence of the universe. I love someone who's next to me, right? So God, we want you to help us love and reverence your name. Vilone Voshle Olam Va'ed, which I think the va means, here means so that, I don't think it just means and, I think it means so that the outcome will be that we will never be, this is um, uh, translated as brought to shame. And, and all of a sudden that's kind of odd. That jumps in there. Like, what is that about? So basically it says, you as the Jewish people or you as an individual, you'll never be brought to shame. What does that mean? As long as your heart is single, your mind is single-mindedly committed to love and reverence God. So for me, that, that raises another question mark, like what does the author mean by that? Up until now, we've just been talking about love. Thank you. You gave us the Torah. The Torah gives us guidance, right? The implication is you're like a loving parent who wouldn't leave us alone out there in the world without instructions. The embodiment of love is that you gave us instructions. Help us single-mindedly or we might say devotedly um, understand and follow those instructions so that we'll never be at a loss. That's a a much uh, gentler way of saying so that we'll never be brought to shame. Okay, I'm going to pause now to ask for any theological reflections that people would like to share, things that strike you when you read this. Michael Harris. Well, first of all, I, don't, I, I think I can uh, harmonize the idea of free will and also saying, please make me study Torah and, and do, do things. That's great that you can harmonize that. You will solve the philosophical conundrum that people have had for centuries and millennia. Go ahead. Thank you. I, I see um, asking for, for this kind of guidance as not being inconsistent with free will, but simply an exercise of free will to say, I want to pull back from my free will in this area and, and allow you to, to guide me. I'll accept your guidance. You're saying something like, I will help, help me recuse myself my ego so that I can accept your guidance. Something like that? Okay, okay sort of. Okay, good, thank you. And I, a, and I also had a question. Yep. If, if um, the Rambam did not see uh, any, any uh, feelings in God, that, that only, only people have feelings, uh, how is it that he would be able to get through the high holiday liturgy where we're constantly pleading to God's merciful uh, nature to to uh, do things for us. It's all a metaphor. So Rambam says, just as I have arms and legs and a liver and bile, and so I use those things as metaphors for talking about God, because God has no body. I can't conceive of a being without a body. Therefore, I use aspects of my body to help me understand aspects of how that being functions. Similarly, emotions, 
live in, if Rambam lived today, he would say emotions live in the limbic system of the brain. The limbic system of the brain is just a human thing. Um, and God doesn't have a limbic system of God's brain. <clears throat> so again, I'm just using <clears throat> my human experience to talk about God, right? But it's all a metaphor. God, Rambam says it's all a metaphor. God, all God is, is pure mind, which is fundamentally un anything unlike we can conceive, right? Because I have a body and I have feelings, okay? He says a body is a human thing, emotions are human things, God does not have emotions. It's one of the shocking things that Rambam says. So he says it's all a metaphor, he says a lot of things are metaphor. When it says the prophet heard God's voice, he says it's all a metaphor. It's something that happens in the prophet's head, except for Moses, who he puts in a different category, right? So Rambam is really, he is, you know, he's a, a man of science of his day. Philosophy was the science of his day. And he is like as, as hardcore a rationalist as there could have been in the Middle Ages. So he, he says, no, it's, he, so he says, if you, if you, he says, you know, also simple people like you and me, Michael Harris, we sit in, in high holiday services and we're not thinking of God as being pure mind and all this is just a metaphor, but that's because we're simple people. We're not able to think on such an abstract level. So we are in need of these metaphors to try to talk about God. But if you think about it, um, you know, in a clear-headed educational way, clear-headed and educated way, it's all a metaphor. You know, Rambam's great philosophical work, The Guide for the Perplexed, it was not written to be a popular work, okay? It was written, it's in the guise of he's writing it to one student to help the one student solve his dilemmas about uh, faith versus reason. We would call it, in modern parlance, science versus religion, right? So he's saying, you, my student, are part of the highly educated elite. And this gives you certain theoretical problems. I'm gonna write a book for you to, to understand how I explain the world so that you can see the world this way. He did not write that book for people like you and me to be sitting and thinking about during high holiday services. He says religion you know, is constructed for common people who are on a lower level. They're not philosophers. He says to become a philosopher and understand things abstractly is the highest level of understanding God, and it is a desideratum, but the vast majority of people won't attain that and don't do that. They are simple. We're simple peasants, and so we read these simple peasant metaphors about God loving and forgiving and being sad and being angry and all that stuff. Sorry, that's a long answer, but that's what Rambam would say. He would say, yeah, that's religion for the masses, and they believe that. If you're really troubled by it, because it doesn't make sense to you philosophically, let me explain to you what I think it all really means. Right. But Rambam, I'm, I'm doubting that when Rambam gave a Dvar Torah in shul, he stood up and he said, but it's all just a metaphor. I don't think he said that. Right. 
Meyer. Doesn't that also go counter a little bit to uh, being made to sell Mo in his image in the sense that if we were made in God's image, that theoretically we could imagine an arm or a leg or, um, you know, anthropomorphic view of him? Yes, absolutely. So again, Rambam says all of these things, Debrat Torah Bilshon B'nai Adam, the Torah speaks in accessible human language. The Torah was given to human beings. And so the Torah uses all sorts of, we, we would call them, I think from our view, folksy ideas and images to help make its ideas clear to people. Um, and, you know, most of the commentators said from the get-go, thought Bitsalmo, God's image, didn't mean physical, but, you know, they say it's the power of speech or the power of consciousness. Um, and I think Maimonides says, I'd ha- you'd have to go read it in the Guide to the Perplexed, but I think he probably says something like, it's the capacity to aspire to be pure mind. It's aspirational for Rambam. I mean, on the one hand, it's only aspiration. Being like God meaning means that you are capable of being mind, right? Just mind. And Rambam would say, on the one hand, it's only aspirational. Most people can't achieve that. On the other hand, it is aspirational. Like, if you are an enlightened person, that is what you should be striving for. You should be striving to be as much like God as possible, and that is to be in the realm of intellect. I can't tell you more what that means because I'm, you know, again, it's just words, philosophical words. Uh, two more things. What is in the translation I'm using, the Sax translation, Yeah. he has to translate that as uh, instill in our hearts a desire to understand. Right. Instill so. in our hearts a desire, right? So, Vitain Bilibenu, instill in our hearts a desire. That's a good metaphoric translation of, of again, literally just means put it in our minds. So we have to say, well, what does that mean? And he's, ta- he, he's in that translation, he is um, taking in the idea of mind, the idea of sort of a drive, right? Instill in us the drive, the desire to do something, to right. want Torah, right? I just want to note one more thing. We were talking about the Avinu Malkinu, you know, the... The two different. Yeah. I also think that that not just relates to just a relationship with God, but also the domains in which we live. Mm-hmm. So the Avino being in our house, the Malkino being outside of our house. Okay. Which I think to some degree is foreshadowing what's coming in the Shema, right? The Shittal Bittetel So the sense is that, and I think we, we start with the world, with creation, and then we get to the particular here of ourselves and our minds and our hearts and our heads, etc. And I think that in, in talking about God ruling those places and us relating to him in both those places, but also it means, it, I also think it may relate to different domains. Okay. Like we're inside our house as kids, perhaps even, and as we move on, even later, I mean, there's a lot okay. of ways you can look at that. A, a more personal or a smaller domain, and then, uh, uh, and the more, sorry, the smaller domain is more personal, and then there's a larger domain, which is more uh, corporate group out there world. Okay, good, thanks. Other thoughts? Random reflections, Larry? This is a, this is the random reflection session, a part of the session. Larry? 
I have a question and I have a comment. Yeah. The question is really not facetious. Avi, when you're talking about what Rambam is saying, are you channeling the Rambam? Or is this Avi Khavivi speaking as well? Um, I, I, want, I think it's, well, I think, I, I think um, the both ways of looking at things, you know, and, and, and then we have people who are sort of vaguely in the middle, like Kabbalah, which talks about abstract processes flowing in the universe, energies, but then it talks about it in a very concrete way, like the left side and the right side of the energy. I was reading something yesterday about the left. The day two of creation is about division, the left side and the right side. And there needs to be division in the universe, um, but then it needs to be harmonized. And the problem with Korach is he just wanted division and he didn't want to be harmonized. But the Machloket of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai is because they recognize there needs to be distinction, but distinctions then ultimately need to be harmonized. And that's why they're so... They're, Let's put it this way. There are many different ways of understanding what we mean when we say God. For some people, it's very simple. So for some people, it's very simple that God is a spirit outside the universe that says, let there be light. For other people, it's very simple that there is an obvious, that there's a complex unfolding of energy that ends up in my uh, me having DNA. And I think different lobe, my answer to that is different lobes of my brain think different things at different times and in different points of my life. And I think for many people, it's not obvious. For me, it's not obvious. I'm not one of those obvious people. For some people, it's clear which way it is. Um, for me, it's not. And they're different metaphors, different understand, different frameworks for understanding how God operates and what God is in the world that make more or less sense depending on what you, what you believe at a particular moment, right? I am saying to Hillim because someone I know is very sick, and I and each day before I say a chapter, I say I'm saying this to Hill uh, to to help the healing of so and so. It's a prayer, okay? Um, if someone dies, I don't believe it's because God said, like Apollo shooting arrows, Zeus shooting arrows. Poof, you die now. Right. So you might say idea number one and idea number two. How do you hold those two things in one head that you're saying this psalm for uh, because you want you're praying for the person for God to heal the person. Yet if someone dies, you don't say, God, you killed that person. How can you? Those are two contradictory ideas. Okay, And that's because the brain is a big, squashy bag of cells and chemicals that is capable of containing contradictions. That is my answer, Mr. Herman. That is my evasive answer, Mr. Herman. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles, go to tba.com. 
www.thepeopleshow.org.